Spirit of God, I believe that you have a word for us this morning. I ask, Father, that you would please, in your grace, go beyond the learning and the receiving of information this morning. And I ask you, Lord, that you would take your truth and that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts and that we would be able to, by your grace, walk in this truth that we're going to be learning, that we're going to be absorbing in our spirits today. And I ask you, Spirit of God, that you would open our eyes and give us discernment in your truth, your scriptures, and that, Father, that your spirit would speak very directly and very particularly and specifically to our hearts, that, Lord, we would leave here changed and greatly encouraged because we have encountered the God of Scripture and he has done this marvelous thing in pouring out his grace and instructing us through his word and empowering us by his spirit to walk in this truth. So I ask you, Lord God, that right now your spirit would speak and that your people would follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, I take that prayer very seriously when I ask the Spirit of God to speak because my heart is, God, let every word of man that doesn't line up with your word, let it fall to the ground and be as nothing. When I was 12 years old, I picked up a book by Hal Lindsey, entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have ever heard of that book before? Okay. After I was done that book, I thought it was so fascinating, I picked up his other book, going through the book of Revelation, entitled There's a New World Coming. How many of you have ever heard of that book before? Only one other hand. Okay. Well, I devoured both books, and here's a public confession. There were several times in which I stayed home from school just to read those books. Oh. <laughs> The truth, though, is that they were so fascinating, and in the, in the 70s, especially during the Jesus People movement, there was a lot of talk about end times, and it just really fascinated me. Now, get a load of this. This is before I became a Christian, <laughs> and, and God used something to spark my heart and, and interest in Jesus' second coming, and what is all of this going on, etc. And I'm going to just share this with you because those books impacted me for the beginning of my Christianity. Um, I then took a step back and said, okay, Lord, this is what this man says. Now, what does your word say? And here's the difficulty that I began to have. And that is that with these books, and as they were being proliferated in the body of Christ, um, it began to emphasize a negative view of the coming of Christ. Now, it's glorious, Jesus coming. I mean, nobody can downplay that. But the truth, as, it was as, they, as they would teach it, as this, these books taught it, was that the world was going to get worse and worse until finally, when Jesus came back, Christianity would be but a flicker because, after all, the Christians are gone, and just 144,000 would be saved, and Jesus came back to almost a barren church. And so as, as the history of the church is unfolding, the darkness encroached upon the, the light until finally it was all but gone. Now I want to ask you, what, how do you view Jesus' second coming? Many today continue to believe that the world is only going to become more and more evil. But let me ask you this, what if Scripture actually taught the opposite? What if Scripture, God himself, has every intention of bringing upon the earth an awakening that will eclipse the first and second great awakenings by far? And what if the awakening didn't just touch pockets of people in the world like every revival that we have seen, and I'm, I'm using revival and awakening interchangeably here, but if there was such a, an awakening throughout history that has touched only pockets, what if this were global in scope? Now, the, the send has challenged people to fast and pray for such a global awakening. 
I'm just simply telling you that how we view some passages in Scripture are going to determine not just how we view the outcome of the church until Jesus comes, but it will actually impact the way we live. Because if we're not careful and we embrace a negative view of how this world and how the church is going to unfold historically until Jesus comes back. And if we view it negatively, there's just going to be worse and worse. The temptation will be, and I'm not saying this is what absolutely must happen, but the tendency is for the body of Christ to separate itself from the world, separate itself from politics, you know, separate itself from businesses, and, and for us to kind of just hold on till Jesus comes comes. And I'm going to suggest to you that Scripture actually teaches this amazing global, global extent revival awakening that will touch not just pockets, but the entire world. And if this is the case, then there is a place that the body of Christ, the church, has in this. So I'm just going to suggest if our view is negative, it will affect us. If our view is very positive, and we're going to go through scriptures to demonstrate this, it will impact us. And once we have seen what scripture has to say about this, we're now going to need to investigate what part does God have for us to play in this? Not just the church historically throughout history and until Jesus comes. And if he comes in our our lifetime, praise God. But church, can I suggest he may not? But what do we do? Not just the church, but what do you, what do the people in power line do? And these are questions that we need to investigate. Because I'll be honest with you, God needs to stir something up in the body of Christ. And so for this reason, the send has said, let, let, let's take this for these 40 days. It's going to go till, what is it, April the 9th, I believe. Um, it started March 1st, goes till April the 9th, and they're just saying, look, body of Christ, let's rally together on this, and let's pray for a global awakening that will stir and shake this earth before Christ comes back. Now, I realize that I have bitten off quite a bit to chew on when we're talking about global revival, global awakening. Now, technically, the word revival refers specifically, and I'm getting technical here, it refers specifically to the church and Jesus' desire to awaken and stir up the church. That technically is how historians talk about revival. And when that then happens, it impacts the world and the, and the world awakens. So revival generally refers to the church and what God wants to do in the church and awakening with regard to the unbelievers in this world and how he wants to awaken them. Now, let's be honest with you. Neither of those two terms are found in the Bible. They're simply concepts. So forgive me if when I, I might use the term global revival or global awakening I am referring to the very same thing, okay? We need to understand that for there to be any revival, and this is historically demonstrated, God must wake up the church. And by waking up the church, I mean stirring it up. God sends prophets into the church. God sends his spirit to stir them up and open their eyes and say, I need to live for Jesus. And for the church to become ignited in its passion and pursuit of Jesus Christ. And when this happens, there has been an awakening. We, we, in America, we've experienced the first and second great awakenings. We've experienced pocket revivals. But I want us to see something, turning now to Daniel 2, I want us to see something that actually has global impact before Jesus Christ comes back. Whether that's in our generation or not, I know that there are many who, who open their Bibles and they've got this uh, chart and they're going to explain to us how Jesus is coming back in our generation. And the truth is that's what Hal Lindsey thought. And many people like him. They believed that since Israel became a nation in 1948, 40 years later, count them off within a generation, which generally is 40 years, um, Jesus was going to come back. But guess what didn't happen in 1948? Jesus did not come back. There was no seven years of tribulation, etc. And so we need to realize that how we view what we're going to talk about will impact how we live. 
It impacted the people in the first and second great awakenings. I believe it needs to impact Jesus's church as well. So let's, we're we're there in Daniel chapter two. I'm going to be starting in verse 31, but let me preface it with this, that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He refused to tell his astrologers what the dream was. He didn't just ask for the interpretation of the dream. He said, I want you to tell me what the dream was and then give me the interpretation. Because if you can do this, then I know the gods have spoken through you. Well, guess what they couldn't do? They said, King, this is too hard for us. He said, okay, fine. And he turned to his guards and said, I want you to kill all of the astrologers. Now, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were a part of that group, except they, they had a Christian worldview, a Hebrew um, worldview, if you will, a biblical worldview. And so they didn't look to the gods for answers, but they looked to Yahweh himself. And so as Daniel spent time in prayer, God revealed what the dream was and its interpretation. So I want to read that to you. He's speaking to the king. To our knowledge, this is the first time that he has been ushered into the presence of the king and shared anything of a supernatural substance And this is what he shares with him, verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs, that is its calves, of of iron, and its feet, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet. Church, where did, this, where did the right rock strike the statue? On the feet, thank you. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. Could you underline that phrase, broken to pieces, at the same time? Not in succession, at the same time. Interesting. And became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. That small, broken to smithereens, smashed, crushed. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but... The rock that stuck, struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. I want you, he then goes on to talk about how the head of gold was the kingdom of Babylon, four kingdoms, how the chest and arms of bronze represented the Medo-Persian Empire, how the yeah, how the the belly and the thighs of bronze, did I say bronze silver for the chest and arms? The bronze belly and thighs represented the kingdom of Greece. And then the last kingdom was spoken about actually two times. The thighs, not, not quite yet. The, uh, I'll give you. The thighs were of iron and the feet were made of iron and clay. That represents, both of those represent the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. But what he does is he get God gets very specific. The thighs, excuse me, the calves of iron would represent then the Roman Republic, which actually existed for several hundred years. Around, and, and historians throw dates around 100 to about 60 or 44 B.C., it transitioned into an empire. That's with Julius Caesar. And that empire then encompassed many nations. And because of this, there was a semblance of strength because it became a strong military power, but there was also a a semblance of weakness because they were conquered people groups desiring independence, and the only way they were unified was through the one rule. Now, if you were to look at a map, you would, de- you would see the difference between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. 
question again, when did this, where did this rock strike the statue on its feet? When Rome became an empire that would represent the feet, this is the time, actually its second emperor, um, in which Caesar Tiberius was ruling that Jesus uh, was born. Now, what we discover then is in this text, a rock cut out not by human hands, but by God himself is cut out of a mountain. That rock then smashes the feet, and when that happens, the entire statue is crushed, and that rock becomes a huge mountain that fills the earth. Now, notice we, we see two different mountains. There's the mountain in which the rock was hewn, and then there is a mountain that the rock becomes. May I suggest to you that this rock is none other than Jesus Christ, that the mountain that he is carved from is the kingdom of God as it exists in heaven, and his rule extends to earth, but in a very, very limited fashion, the nation of Israel. That this rock is Jesus. He comes during the Roman Empire, and this rock crushes the statue. And it becomes this huge mountain. Again, that mountain, in keeping with our interpretive scheme here, would be the kingdom of God. But now it is on earth, and it fills the entire earth. I want us to see here that it's very possible when he's talking about crushing the statue that the, the Babylonian empire was conquered and absorbed into the Medo-Persian empire. When that empire came to an end, it was conquered and absorbed into Greece. And when Alexander's kingdom of Greece came to an end through his four generals that it then was conquered and absorbed into the Roman Empire. So when Jesus' kingdom is established on earth, it crushes this world empire, each successively conquered and absorbed into the next. And when Rome is crushed, God's kingdom expands. Now, we're going to have to come back to this word crushed because most of the time when we think of crushed or broken to pieces, we think of a military battle or a war that goes on. I'm going to assure you that something like this hasn't happened and neither will it happen because the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom in the midst of physical kingdoms spreading throughout the earth. But the instruction here is that this kingdom, this rock, becomes a huge mountain and it then extends to the entire earth. So here's my question for you. Has that happened yet? Has the kingdom of God become this huge mountain so that it encompasses the entirety of the earth? Now, especially if you're missions-minded and you read up on missions, you realize this has not happened. As a matter of fact, in the, especially in the 1040 window, Christianity is bare and scant to nothing, maybe hundreds or thousands at the most amongst millions, if not billions, of Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims. But as I'm reading here, and if this is right, then that something is going to happen in the 1040 window. Now, some of you sponsor Gospel for Asia, and I'm going to tell you this, that not just Gospel for Asia, but many missions-oriented uh, uh, agencies, uh, especially nationally run within India, is the gospel is spreading. God is doing miracles, not just in India, but it is spreading throughout Asia, and it's encroaching upon the kingdoms of this world in the 1040 window. 
And so when we're looking at this, and I hope that there is something that, and this sense of anticipation that leaps within our hearts saying God is not just doing something in our day, in the 1040 window, but his promise is that it will encompass the entire 1040 window, and it will go into Russia, which is atheist for the most part, and it will extend throughout the earth. Now, I realize that there are many in the body of Christ that do not see it this way. I'm going to move now into Isaiah chapter 2. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2, go ahead and put that up. I'm going to touch on something right now, and it is extremely controversial. There are many views in the body of Christ about on what I'm about to share with you. My purpose is only to take maybe 15 or so minutes on this subject and then move on. We'll see if we can do that. But I want us to see that ever since Justin Martyr and Papias in 140 AD, there have been two views on what's commonly called the millennium. Now, the only reason why I'm going to touch on this is because this first view, which in our day is very strong, and in the 1800s, uh, it became stronger and stronger, and I would say in the mid-1900s, even stronger, and with the advent of the Left Behind series, even larger. The truth, though, is most people in the body of Christ really don't care a whole lot. They just want to care about when Jesus comes, and so they pick up a book. They say, well, I guess this must be right, and they really have not studied the scriptures. Now, some have, and I'm, so what I want to do is I want to walk through this, and may God give me grace to be able to present this, not just in a sh very short version, but to be able to do so humbly. Because there are many of us here, you would say, yep, I embrace the first world, the first model. And some of us who would say, I embrace this one. I didn't label it. This is more the amillennial view. Um, so obviously, there's a lot up here. And I just don't have time to get into it all. But I, I'm, I want us to see something that I believe is very important. Because whichever view we hold to, now this one in particular, the historic premillennial view, I realize that there is the dispensational premillennial view. I'll touch on that in a moment. But for the most part, this is the premillennial view. It interprets the millennium in Revelation 20 literally, or at least more literally. And this view tends to interpret it more symbolically. There is no one who interprets Revelation literally. Can, can you write that down? There is nobody on planet Earth who interprets Revelation literally. No one sees a beast on all fours, and at one point he looks like a lion, maybe a leopard, then a bear, and then a terrifying beast. There is nobody who does that. And so everyone understands the book of Revelation to a degree symbolically. This view happens to hold it more symbolically, okay? However... In holding this view, these scripture passages that I'm about to share with you, you will, that those who hold this view will say, well, all of those scripture passages that you keep preaching on, Pastor Mike, will fall into the millennium, the 1,000 years between the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the righteous and then the resurrection of the wicked and the judgment. They say that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and that's when all of this will be fulfilled. I want to challenge that, okay? Because as I go through these scriptures, if we see them fulfilled here and not between the cross-resurrection and Jesus' second coming, we are going to miss this concept of global revival. So just bear with me, and I will be brief here. And this is a subject that if you want to study more on, there's four hour and 15 minute sessions online in addition to the order of the Lord's Day online. So what's that? It's about six hours of teaching that I'm going to give to you in like 15 minutes. So buckle your seatbelts. I hope you understand what's at stake then. And where we come out here may very well determine how we're going to look at these scriptures that we're going to look at this week and next week and a few uh, in the coming weeks. Is there going to be a global awakening? Or is the world just going to get worse and worse till Jesus comes back? And how is that going to affect us? 
and impact us in how we live. Number one, let me just say this. That when we discuss the concept of the millennium, here is the struggle that we have. There is only one place in the New Testament that talks about it. There's only one place, and that would be Revelation 20. There have been some scholars who have said, no, it talks about it in other places, but under closer scrutiny, we would discover it, they, it tr these passages truly do not speak of the millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth between his second coming and the judgment. Secondly, I would like you, if we were to hold to a premillennial model, I would like you to finish this sentence. If we are going to adopt this view, finish, finish this sentence. The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to... The Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to... The Lord's going to come with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to... The premillennials would finish that sentence to resurrect the righteous and inaugurate the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That's how the premillennialist would finish that sentence, in all, in all fairness to their view. But when we read Jude, Jude doesn't finish it that way. As a matter of fact, Jude states very clearly, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. Thousands upon thousands of angels to judge everyone. It's as if Jude skips over this millennium, and the very purpose now of Jesus coming is not to inaugurate a kingdom on earth, but his very purpose is to judge everyone. If we were to hold to a premillennial view, finish the sentence. At the resurrection of the righteous, then the saying that is written will come true. Let me repeat that. At the resurrection of the righteous, then the saying that is written will come true. So, at the resurrection of the righteous, right here, finish the sentence, when they are raised from the dead, at that moment, what will happen? Then the saying that is written will, then the saying that is written will come true. Christ will set up his millennial kingdom on earth. However, when we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and I would like you to do that, I want us to see something here, and this is crucial. For years and years and years, I embraced the view of a premillennial view. Now, let me reiterate, ever since Papias and Justin Martyr, 14150 AD, there have been godly men and women on both sides of this. I, I held that view for many, many decades, and I've eventually slid into a pan mill view that it's just all going to pan out in the end because I couldn't figure it out. Someone began showing me what I'm showing you right now. And it was as if pieces to the puzzle fit in for me. I began investigating this further, and my view on this subject completely changed. I'm doing this for you. There, there's many verses. There's two dozen verses that we could go through. I'm just going to share three or four of them today. Let me just... At the resurrection of the righteous, then the saying that is written will come true. Now, if we're holding to the premillennial view, we would say Jesus comes and he sets up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years on earth, right? But what does it say? If we look here in verse 54, it says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, that is, in the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, at the last trumpet, talking about the resurrection in preceding verses, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Here's the saying. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death 
is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So actually what Paul says here is the saying that is written will come true is that death will be swallowed up in victory and the sting of death is sin. Therefore, both death and sin will be defeated. Death and sin, that is the, the death is the, the result of sin, both death and sin will be swallowed up in victory, the sense of triumph. But however, when we look at this and Jesus comes back and there's the resurrection here, it happens a thousand years later in which death and sin and the curse is lifted. That doesn't happen during the millennial kingdom. That happens, at least according to premillennials' view, that happens in the new heavens and the new earth. So when, when the perishable becomes, has taken on the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then at that moment right here, then death is no more. Sin, gone, the curse, lifted. The new heavens and the new earth inaugurated. I, I, I struggled when I read through this again to be able to fit a thousand years into that because when the resurrection happens, then at that moment is when death and sin will be no more. Death is swallowed up in victory as well as sin. We could turn to First, Second Thessalonians chapter two. Do that with me. Second Thessalonians, excuse me. Second Thessalonians chapter one, and we see this theme of the order of the day of the Lord, which includes the second coming, the judgment, the resurrection, and the like, the new heavens and new earth. It says in verse eight, six of Second Thessalonians one, it says, "God is just." Now listen to this. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He will pay back trouble to those who are true. Who is you? The Thessalonians, alive at that time in history. God's going to do something to those people who are persecuting you. We learn about this in verse 4, about them persevering because of per in the midst of persecution. And he says, not only will he pay back trouble to those who trouble you, he give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, forgive me, I don't have time to get into this, but that will happen at his second coming. He will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his angels, and yes, 1 Thessalonians 4 says also with his saints, his holy saints, and he will, what will he do? Verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And so I, I struggled, and still to this day, I struggle with trying to insert a thousand years here, because Jesus comes in blazing fire and he brings judgment. Now, if we, this is a very simplified, the, the amillennial view is a very simplified understanding in which Jesus comes back and he immediately raises the dead and he swiftly brings judgment, not just to those on earth, but in the eternal judgment that Revelation 20 speaks of. And then he destroys the new heaven, excuse me, he destroys the heavens and the earth, and he recreates a new heavens and a new earth. For further study, you can look at 2 Peter chapter 3, in which he lays out all of these. He lays out the second coming, he lays out the judgment, he lays out the destruction, and the, re and the recreating of the new heavens and the new earth, one after the other, and he calls it the day of the Lord. <clears throat> If we were to turn to the parables, one after the other, we would discover the unfaithful servant. The master comes back, and he brings judgment. The parable of the talents and the minas, the master or the king comes back, and he renders judgment, some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. The sheep and the goats, we see the very same theme. 
the weeds and the wheat. There is the harvest, and they're immediately thrown into the furnace or put in Jesus in God's barn, if you will. In the dragnet, the fish at the end of the age are immediately sorted. There is no thousand years. Now, again, I want to emphasize there is a reason why I'm going through this. And if you hold to this view, you're probably feeling, well, Mike, you're being really unfair. I'm going to concede that because there's so many scripture passages that we could look at. But they would all lead us to, I believe, the same conclusion. When Jesus comes with his powerful angels and sits on his glorious throne, then he will judge. Matthew chapter 25, concerning sheep and goats. What we are then left with is Revelation chapter 20. And again, Revelation is very symbolic. I would suggest to you that when we come to that chapter, we discover something. That, and this is what I personally have discovered in holding to a non-millennial view, I have discovered that the concept of the key that the angel holds fits better with that model and how symbolic it is. The chains that Satan is bound with fit better with that model. The concept of Satan being bound, which is found elsewhere in Scripture, fits better with this model. The idea that it keeps him from deceiving the nations, that is not tempting or deceiving people, but deceiving the nations globally. And what to what end does he do this when he's released? It's to lead a rebellion that we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What we discover then is everything, including the first and second resurrection, I discovered anyway, was that it fits better with this model. A very simple model. When Jesus comes back, he doesn't inaugurate an earthly kingdom. Instead, that kingdom is already here and when we read through Revelation 20, there is no place in there that says that his kingdom will be on earth. There's nowhere, nowhere it says that those who have died with Christ will rule and reign with Jesus on the earth. As a matter of fact, when John sees this vision, you can tell, he says, and I saw thrones. He's in heaven. He's not on earth. And that's where it leaves us. John is in heaven, and he's talking about those who have been beheaded and suffered for Jesus and died in Christ, and he says they will rule and reign with Jesus. Where? Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is right there. Now, let me just say this, that in the mid-1800s, the dispensational view was, began to be taught. It has not been around very long. For 1,800 years, the church held to either of these two views. Dispensational premillennialism understood the scriptural difficulties that I'm sharing with you, and we could go, other, go over another one to two dozen verses and see the same thing. And so they said, they came to the rescue and said, well, there are multiple judgments and there are multiple resurrections. Even though scripture speaks of only one resurrection and one judgment. They realized, though, that in suggesting multiple resurrections and multiple judgments, that this was not something that would be found in scripture. But in order for these scripture passages that I've been reading to you to fit and allow for a millennial view on earth, then there is a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked here and the judgment just here, just as in here. But now we're going to insert a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And again, the resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous and their judgment here. And so we have two resurrections, two judgments. But the problem is that there is nowhere in Scripture that teaches multiple judgments or multiple resurrections. As a matter of fact, this view interprets Revelation literally, and, would, and, and if we're going to do that, and we see it, Revelation, chronologically, then there is only one judgment, and it happens at the end of chapter 20. But I would suggest to you that Revelation is not chronological in any way, that there are actually several rewinds a little bit of history and what God judges, and then he begins over. And then he talks about judgments coming upon the earth. And then he rewinds, 
And we see numerous places where God brings judgment, and then he starts over again and talking about his judgments. Now, I realize that I have gone through this quickly, but as I now go into Isaiah chapter 2, I think you're going to see why this is important. The question that I had always have and have today is, according to this view, what is the purpose of the millennium? I've had other premillennialists agree with me on this. For me personally, it serves no purpose whatsoever. It doesn't motivate me. As a matter of fact, when I die, I would rather not come on earth for a thousand years. I would rather go straight to either, you know, in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, the new heavens and the new earth, I don't want a thousand years on earth where there's still sin, where there's still death, though it doesn't apply to me because I'm walking around in my resurrected body. So what is the purpose then of this? Let me tell you the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to realize that at the end of the age, that is it. The door is closed. A new door to a new heavens and the earth is open. But something significant, powerful, and, and grand in scope happens before Christ appears on earth. And this is why I want us to see it. it these verses I'm reading do not fit into the, the millennium in the premillennial view. They fit, according to Scripture, before Jesus comes back. Now, do you understand the import of what I'm sharing with you? Because we're about to read a Scripture passage that, at least in our generation, is commonly understood to be fulfilled here. And I'm going to suggest to you, no, it is fulfilled here before Jesus comes back. So, are you there with me then in Isaiah chapter 2. Starting with verse 1, this is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. Not in the last days of the millennium on earth, but in the last days of this age. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream into it. Can you underline that phrase? All nations. All nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will, listen to this, they will beat their swords into plowshares. The war instruments will be no more is what he's saying and their spears into pruning hooks, agricultural tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, oh, why is he even sharing this? Because he says it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem, but it seems to speak of the entire world. He says, come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light is the revelation of God. He continues that theme of light in chapter 20. You can write that down and look at it later. But this light shines, and Jesus says it was fulfilled when he came. This light that comes to the earth. Let us walk in this light, the revelation of God. Now, according to what this passage is saying, we, he, Isaiah sees a mountain. I'm going to suggest to you it's the very same mountain that Daniel saw, except it is now the rock has already hit the feet of the statue, and it is becoming a huge mountain to envelop the entire earth. This mountain is the kingdom of God. Now, if this mountain literally is Mount Zion, present-day Mount Zion, it would be very small. Is very small indeed. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem has outgrown Mount, Mount Zion. Mount Jerusalem, present-day Jerusalem, is sprawling over other mountains, over the Mount of Olives. Um, the, the, 
That was happening back in the 1900s. The Bible says that nations will stream to this mountain. It is not a literal mountain. What does Hebrews 12 say? You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, in which people are terrified. That would be Mount Sinai, a physical mountain. You have not come to that mountain. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And the author of Hebrews applies this concept of Mount Zion to the kingdom of God. Now, if we have come to that, he's not saying when you die, you will. But right now, church, we have come to this amazing kingdom of God in which it's inaugurated from heaven as Jesus sits on David's throne and his rule is extending over his kingdom and that kingdom will consume the earth. After all, it says all nations will stream to this mountain. Literally, there's no way to fit all those people on a mountain. Absolutely no way. Because he is talking about his kingdom as this huge mountain, as Mount Zion. It will be chief among all other mountains. There are other mountains. There are other hills. Those are different religions. Those are different paths to God, different kingdoms of this world. But in the end, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And so what we discover here is that this is a picture in the New Testament of this, this mountain of the Lord, and it's specifically the mountain of the Lord's temple. Now, in the Hebrew, it's house. This is the house of the Lord. Now, can I suggest to you that this temple, this house of the Lord, is not a literal building. The temple of God, the tabernacle of God always was a foreshadowing of what, church? Help me out. What was the temple and the tabernacle always a foreshadowing of? It was of Jesus himself. And then Paul gets into the idea that you and I, we are the temple of God. This is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. I would suggest to you from the, from the end of the Gospels where Christ is crucified and he is raised from the dead, this concept of the Lord's temple, God's temple, now from then on refers only to the body of Christ. Only refers to you and me. Jesus fulfilled this concept of the temple, and now we are the body of Christ. As we go through Ezekiel 40 through 48, and we talk, and, and he goes into detail about Ezekiel's temple, he is talking about Jesus. He is talking about the ultimate fulfillment of this temple, which would then be not just Jesus and how he fulfilled it, but now the body of Christ. We are the temple of God rising to become a holy temple in the Lord in which he lives, he dwells by his spirit. And so this, this temple, the body of Christ, is situated in this kingdom and nations are, be, are streaming into it. The result of this is that the kingdom of God will so impact, and we're going to look at this next week, so impact nations that nations will turn to the Lord. Let, let's, let's look at this in, in Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to read a very familiar passage. Next month, we are going to be celebrating Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we will probably read this passage. And it says in Zechariah chapter 9, starting with verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That happened when? Yeah, th that day. We call it Palm Sunday. That's when they laid down palm branches and Jesus was riding on a donkey and Matthew and Luke, they clearly say this was to fill this passage of Scripture right here. Verse 9 was fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as their Savior, 
gentle, bringing salvation, bringing righteousness. But was he received? No. But this passage was fulfilled then. Instead of receiving him, they chose to crucify him. And you and I both know that whatever the world does to come against the kingdom of God, it ultimately will not win and cannot win. And so Jesus was raised from the dead because the Bible says that death could not hold him down. And so we, th- we, we see that this passage, this verse was fulfilled at that time. And it goes on, verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses, notice the contrast with the donkey, a, burden, a, a beast of burden for peace. When David's sons were in a moment of peace, they rode donkeys. When they were in war, they rode war horses, okay? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Let me word this differently. He will take their swords and beat them into plowshares. I will proclaim peace to the nations. Who is I? This is Jesus. I will proclaim peace. How will he do this? In what form will Jesus proclaim peace to the nations? Through the gospel, through you and me, opening our mouths, living lives before the, 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 the people here on this earth to make the gospel attractive. Jesus is going to be proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of peace through you and me. And it says right here, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, that is the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. From sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's everywhere. Now I'm going to... There are other passages. I'm going to skip this one. You You can write this down. But Psalm 72, 8 to 11. It has been suggested that all nations means not literally all nations, but all kinds of nations. All kinds of nations. In, in Acts chapter 2, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and they will prophesy. And I understand that word all doesn't mean every single person. It means all kinds of flesh, all kinds of people. But hang on a second. Is that what the word all here means? All kinds? All kinds of nations. Here's the problem we have. Nations are different one from the other. They are a different kind to, from the next nation. They are a people group with a different culture, different language, some of them different religion, different way of life, different way of cooking, different way of dressing. They are a people group. They are a nation, not just a geopolitical nation, but they are a nation, and they are of a different kind than the next. It would be redundant to say all kinds of nations because that's the definition of a nation. They're a different kind. And so I'm just going to suggest to you that when the Old Testament and as we move into the New Testament it does not mean all kinds. It truly means all nations. All nations will stream into the kingdom. All nations will have the gospel proclaimed to them so that Jesus' rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I want us to conclude with looking at this what happens when, G- when this rock hit the feet of the statue? It said it broke it to pieces. And later in verse 44, it says it crushed it. It crushed it. Can you turn with me to Hosea chapter 6? It's very close to Daniel if you're still in Daniel, but Hosea chapter 6. I want to read this to you. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, 
but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. We could go through numerous scriptures, even the one in, in Psalm 72 we were going to read. I'm not going to do that. talks about, it uses the very same wording that Zechariah 9 said. His rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And he will, in essence, he will crush his enemies. Can I tell you this? I can say amen to, Isaiah, to Hosea chapter 6 in these two verses that I read. That has happened to me. Jesus, by the cross and by the power of his resurrection, by the gospel being proclaimed to me at age 14, Mike Curtis was slain on the battlefield. Mike Curtis died. He actually was crucified so that no longer does he live, but Christ lives in him. When we read about this Messiah crushing his enemies, this is the, how his kingdom grows. It is not by a physical battle, but by a spiritual battle in which the Spirit of God impacting with the gospel, the people, unbelievers like myself at age 14, the gospel so rended me, so tore me, so undid me. The gospel conquered me, and it crushed me. He who was crushed for my transgressions had to crush Mike Curtis, had to crucify Mike Curtis's old man and raise him up in newness of life, a new creation in Christ, because I once was his enemy. And I found Jesus to be a formidable enemy, and he conquered me, and he put me to death, and I was crucified, and I died, so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, this is the theme that we see both in Old and New Testament, when God's kingdom comes to defeat his enemies. It is not to physically slay them on a battlefield, but it is to slay their pride. It is to slay them spiritually and show them their spiritual bankruptcy apart from the God that they have rebelled against. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I grew up, I was a very religious young man. As you knew, for two years I was reading Hal Lindsey's two books and I was in scripture, come on. But I was still unsaved. And at age 14... God slew me. God crushed me. And, and Psalm 72 says, it says his enemies will lick the dust. I licked the dust. I was humiliated, humbled before him as my king. Can you imagine what will happen to those when they stand before God on this day of judgment and they have been in rebellion as God's enemies for all of their life. They died without Jesus Christ. That when they stand before him and in his presence, they will be overwhelmed by the conquering king. And it says everyone will bow their knee at that moment, saved and unsaved, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, not just the Christians. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that moment, judgment will be rendered. Some to heaven and eternal life and others to eternal damnation in the lake of fire. But they will bend their knee because we can do none other before this conquering king who comes in conquering us. Here's the irony of it. To bring peace. The only way for this enemy here to be at peace with that amazing God was for me to be conquered. The only way for me to have reconciliation and peace with my Savior was I had to die on my spiritual battlefield. And as I lay there, wounded, as I lay there, injured, Torn to pieces 
Hosea says. He revived me. And on the third day, he restored me that I may live in his presence. This is what Jesus comes to do in his kingdom. To make peace, church, you've got to die. To be reconciled to the Father, I can't live. Christ must live in me. My pride, it's got to go. My arrogance, it must be crushed so that I die and Jesus in me lives. And I'm just going to encourage you, if you have never been crushed by the gospel that brings peace, if you have never allowed Jesus to slay you, crucify you, so that you bend the knee in complete surrender to him, today is the day his kingdom will be extending throughout this world throughout this earth, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May that include you. But it will happen. My prayer is that, yes, it happens in this day. And I hope that as we've gone through this, you're beginning to see, maybe for some of us, a different picture. Jesus' goal is not a small goal. Jesus did not come to this earth to simply win a handful, but his goal is to rescue from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. Can you stand with me? Father, we have gone over a lot of information today. I ask you, Father, give us this fresh vision, this clear understanding of what you want to do in our earth. And this plan, this rescue plan that will encompass and engulf this world. God, I ask that you would do that in our day and that you would show us, Father, how we can be even a part of that. But Father, right now I ask, That even though Mike Curtis has been slain, there is always that temptation to bring him back to life. There is always that place for me to feed the flesh. Please, God, not just for me, but every single one of us, slay me daily. Humble me before your mighty hand, under your mighty hand, daily. Allow me to die that I might live. That is who I am. I am a dead one brought back to life. That's how I want to live. And I thank you, Father, that you have given us a new creation in Christ. And if there is those here who have, who have never truly died by the gospel, that today, God, that they would that their knees would be bent before you now rather than for the first time then in the future in judgment. Spirit of God, humble our hearts. We confess to you, God, that we want to serve you in this newness of life. We want to have your vision, God. We want to step into your plan. We want to be empowered by your grace and by your spirit. This is our call. This is our longing, God. That all nations would stream into your kingdom. Do this, God. And as we have fled from the wrath to come, as we have fled from the enemy's camp, and as you have rescued us and brought us into your kingdom, Lord, may we bask in this newness and never forget it and may it capture our hearts and our vision and consume us every day, God. This is the call on our lives, Lord. May we live it. Father, as your spirit will be speaking to our hearts right now, different ways. 
Father, would you show us, so graciously show us how we are this week to walk in that, in that newness of life in Christ. We have been smashed and crushed to be revived and restored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I just encourage you Truly, if you have never surrendered to this King Jesus, please allow someone to pray for you. Go to someone that you know is a follower and disciple of Jesus and ask them to pray with you. This is a decision that will forever change and mark your life. Don't wait any longer. Today, follow Jesus. Amen.